Welcome back to The Reeducation. In this show, I interview the great Saul Stern, one of my favorite journalists, who has written a stunning essay for Commentary Magazine on the history of Palestinian rejection of a two-state solution. Really worth the read. But first, a monologue on why Israel's response to a massacre is being slandered as a genocide. That was Cornell West, presidential candidate, theologian, philosopher, and professor, giving the crowd what they wanted to hear. Israel is the bad guy. They are waging a genocidal war against Gaza. Dr. West has been on this square for a while. Three days after the October 7 pogrom, he told Politico that, quote, Israel and the United States are primarily responsible, end quote. For what Politico described as the violence that took place near the Gaza Strip, West explained, quote, that Palestinians have a right to defend themselves in the same way that Israel has a right to defend itself. There's no doubt about that, but neither has a right to kill innocent people. The state of Israel has been doing that for 75 years, end quote. Thank you so much, Dr. West. I'm sure you've encountered versions of this twisted reasoning a lot recently. Ever since the pogrom of October 7, the victim has been turned into the aggressor. Israel's war to eradicate the authors of that genocidal act are now committing a genocide of its own, we are told. You even hear this from Jews, from Israelis, from Jewish Israelis with PhDs who are experts in genocide. Writing six days after that massacre, Raz Segal, a professor at Stockton University, wrote in Jewish Currents, the assault on Gaza can also be understood in other terms, as a textbook case of genocide unfolding in front of our eyes. I say this as a scholar of genocide who has spent many years writing about Israeli mass violence against Palestinians. End quote. Sigal and others base this largely on some impolitic comments from Israeli officials after the horrors of October 7. Here is Omer Bartov, a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University writing in the New York Times, quote, My greatest concern watching the Israeli-Gaza war unfold is that there is genocidal intent, which can easily tip into genocidal action. On October 7, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that Gazans would pay a, quote, huge price, end quote, for the actions of Hamas and that the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, would turn parts of Gaza's densely populated urban centers, quote, into rubble, end quote. On October 28th, he added, citing Deuteronomy, Quote, you must remember what Amalek did to you, end quote. As many Israelis know, in revenge for the attack by Amalek, the Bible calls to kill alike men and women, infants and sucklings, end quote. Another comment frequently cited by the quote-unquote genocide experts was Yoav Galantz, Israel's defense minister, who said on October 9th, we are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly, 
end quote. On that last point, the defense minister was referring to Hamas, which can charitably be referred to as human animals. I prefer demonic child bride enthusiasts, fanatic mass shooters, or Islamo-fascist dirtbags. It's telling that these scholars focus on the anguished words of Israeli officials in the wake of a bloodletting. It spends so little time focusing on the words of the perpetrators of this heinous act. And their focus is selective, even of the Israelis. Here is an IDF spokesman explaining the initial bombing campaign. Over the last hours, Israel has been striking Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip and striking them with great force. We have struck almost 2,000 targets in the Gaza Strip, and we will continue to strike these targets. Now, which targets are we striking? We are striking Hamas's military infrastructure. That is what we're aiming at. The unfortunate, sad situation in the Gaza Strip is that ever since Hamas took control, almost 20 years ago, of the Gaza Strip, they have been building their military infrastructure underneath their civilians. So how do we get to this? Less than six weeks ago, Israelis were slaughtered, raped, abducted in a killing spree by an organization that boasts of its desire to rid the Jewish state of its Jews. Israel responds by urging Gazan civilians to move from the northern part of the Strip to the south. It bombs places where it believes Hamas commanders and fighters are located, have stored its weapons, or are firing rockets. Civilians are killed. This is true, and that is a tragedy. But Israel does warn the residents before dropping these bombs. At first, Israel cut off its share of the water and electricity into Gaza as a tactic to force Hamas to release its hostages. Gaza relies on Israel for about 13% of its water and half of its electricity. After international outrage, Israel restored the water and electricity, and they did so in less than a week. Earlier this month, Israeli troops finally began its incursion into Gaza, after many delays, and many warnings, I might add. And on Tuesday, the IDF launched operations inside Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, which rests atop a Hamas command center. Now, what I just described is a series of war crimes. They are not war crimes by Israel, they are war crimes by Hamas, turning a hospital into a military headquarters, storing weapons in mosques and schools, abducting children and the elderly, mass killing and rape. They are war crimes. Yet the government of Gaza does not care about any of that because it doesn't recognize international law. Israel, however, does. International opinion matters a great deal to a small democracy in a way that it doesn't matter at all to Hamas or its patrons in Iran. If Israel wanted to commit a genocide against Gaza, it has the bombs to do it with no risk to their own soldiers. And yet Hamas, who really does want to commit a genocide, are now the victims of a genocide? Well, it's an amazing, it's an astounding feat of propaganda. Even though Hamas GoPro'd their own pogrom, the global left, the UN Secretary General, most of our universities, hundreds of anonymous staffers in Congress and the executive branch, and Cornell West, well, they all single out Israel for opprobrium and censure. Now, the reason for this moral inversion comes down to what might be called the weak fascist problem. In the West, we are very good at recognizing the evils of stronger parties in conflicts. No one except the most delusional think Russia is a victim of the war that it started against Ukraine. 
When news stories about Iran's democratic uprisings make their way into the West, no one has a problem denouncing the regime that kills and abducts the protesters. They are the more powerful party. But when a weaker party, in this case Hamas, seeks the annihilation of its stronger adversary, so many in the international community lose their heads. Some of this, again, goes back to the category errors of Franz Fanon. Please listen to that episode, Wretched of the Campus. In a world of colonizers and the colonized, there is nothing the oppressed should not do to win their freedom. As I said earlier, this analogy fails when applied to Israel, which is the Jewish homeland and not a colonial project of a far-off empire. But there's another element of this as well, because much of this criticism boils down to the body count, the simple moralist scream of disproportionality, as if the rules of war were akin to Hammurabi's code, an eye for an eye. But this is not how we judge modern wars. More Germans died in World War II than Englishmen. More Japanese died than Americans. But that does not make the Allies the war criminals. The justness of the Second World War accounted for the ends when judging the means. The world is a safer place because the Japanese fascists and German Nazis were destroyed. They were evil. They started the war. They sought conquest. They practiced genocide. And with the exception of the hard left, very few apply the body count matrix when judging American wars. The U.S. Air Force turned Mosul into rubble. Many, many innocents were killed, along with ISIS commanders. But the goal of ending a terror caliphate was worth the collateral damage. Not so for Israel. Notice that Cornell West's speech never accounts or considers Israel's war aim to drive Hamas from Gaza. Israel's enemies in the international community rarely even pay lip service to the hostages stolen from their homes in a peace concert. Nor do the Israel scolds ask why so many Gazans are killed in this war that Hamas started. No blame is apportioned to Hamas for using hospitals, schools, and mosques as human shields, or preventing civilians from leaving a war zone, or stealing the fuel that is meant for the rest of the citizens who have to live there. Here is a death cult that violates every known rule of combat. They target civilians, and they are proud of it. And then they hide among the people they purport to govern. The thousands of Gazan casualties in the last five weeks were sacrificed without their consent by Hamas on October 7th. Well, it should be said that the anti-Israel crowd has been accusing Israel of committing a genocide since the founding of the Jewish state. It starts with the 1948 War of Independence, where Israel fended off seven Arab armies, in Palestinian memory, this war has become a slaughter, a catastrophe, or Nakba, because in the course of the war started by the Palestinians, hundreds of thousands were displaced, some forcefully, some on their own volition. The agency of the Arab world, leaving aside the Palestinians themselves, is erased. The only actors were a ragtag army of Jews, many of whom survived Hitler's final solution. But we are told this is all a Nakba, as if these let's call them what they are, in some cases, atrocities against Palestinians, happened in a vacuum and not in the course of a war where many atrocities were committed against the Jews. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union also liked to accuse Israel of genocide, especially in its propaganda and disinformation. After the massacre of 3,500 civilians at Sabra and Shatila, refugee camp in Lebanon by Israel-aligned Christian militias, and no doubt about it, this was a terrible atrocity. The UN General Assembly, though, voted to condemn it, you guessed it, as a genocide, which it was not. At the time, the Soviet ambassador said, 
The word for what Israel is doing on Lebanese soil is genocide. Its purpose is to destroy the Palestinians as a nation, end quote. Well, this just wasn't true. Admittedly, again, there are atrocities and terrible things that happen in war, and I would say that Sabra and Shatila probably is the worst that Israel has been associated with. But this was a war to root out another terror encampment of the PLO at the time that was conducting cross-border raids and targeting Israeli civilians. So again, similarities here, I suppose, with Gaza. Now, one has heard more recently after Operation Cast Lead in Gaza, in 2010, the historian Martin Shaw concluded, yes, once again, Israel has committed genocide, and on it goes. So I say all that because what you're hearing now is not really anything new. But we should also say that it's just utter nonsense. Just consider that when Israel won the Six-Day War in 1967, taking over the West Bank and Gaza, the Palestinian population was roughly 1.1 million people. Today, it is 5.3 million. This is the worst genocide ever, if it is indeed a genocide, which of course it is not. Another reason why the charge of genocide is a blood libel is because it's a de facto justification for future atrocities against Jews. Many anti-Zionists follow this logic to its conclusion and argue for the erasure of the Jewish state to their shame. Others, however, will not go that far. And Cornell West is a great example because he is not prepared to say that Israel should not exist. Instead, he bellows and brays for a ceasefire. We loathe and we hate a vicious siege against Gaza. And the least we can do at this moment of overwhelming barbarity is have a ceasefire. And yet you got these cowards in Washington, D.C. talking about a humanitarian pause. Please get off the crack pipe. Wake up. See the humanity of precious Palestinian brothers and sisters. Now, what Dr. West and so many others right now in the West who claim alleged solidarity with Palestine do not understand is that a ceasefire offers the cruelest outcome for both Israel and the Palestinians. By leaving in place a genocidal death cult, Cornell West's efforts to save Palestinian babies, as he says, will ensure that many more of them will be sacrificed in the next war that Hamas starts. After all, October 7 was itself a violation of an earlier ceasefire with Israel. And don't take my word for it. I want to quote now from Hamas Politburo member Ghazi Hamad, who said on October 24th, quote, The Al-Aqsa flood is just the first time, and there will be a second, third, and fourth. Will we pay a price? Yes, and we are ready to pay it. End quote. But don't tell all of that to the fringe of the Jewish left that blocked the doors to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee this week, wearing shirts that said ceasefire now. We are outside the DNC, we're outside the Democratic Party headquarters because this party claims to be on the side of life and peace and equality, and we're saying that we want them to live up to their values and oppose this horrific war and call for a ceasefire now, and we're being responded to by the police shoving anti-war activists down the stairs, shoving peaceful protesters back with their bikes. Well, sorry, not sorry. All of this comes down to a singular standard for the world's only Jewish state that does not apply to any other nation on the planet. I call it the hard bigotry of impossibly high expectations. As Israeli soldiers carry cans of gasoline in a free fire zone to Al-Shifa Hospital and deliver incubators, 
in a fight to take out the terrorists lurking underneath. Millions demand a ceasefire. It's a genocide, they say. Well, we know that's a lie. But the lie is working, as we see the initially strong support countries in Europe, like France, and even some inside the Democratic Party begin to wane. It presents a difficult choice that Israel has tried to avoid for years. Israel knew that Al-Shifa Hospital hosted the Hamas Command Center during Operation Cast Lead in 2009, but Prime Minister Netanyahu did not finish them off in that war, in part because the blowback would have been too intense. Well, he doesn't have the luxury of that half-measure today. As Israel's fourth Prime Minister Golda Meir put it, and it applies so much to what is going on right now, if we have to have a choice between being dead and pitied and being alive with a bad image, we'd rather be alive and have the bad image. Well, the re-education is honored and fortunate to have a living legend, Saul Stern, join us today, who is really one of my favorite writers and has lived a remarkable life. And we're going to get into that. But the reason I have him on today is because of a magnificent essay in the latest issue of Commentary Magazine that goes through the history of Palestinian spectacular violence against Jews in Israel called It's Not the Occupation, Stupid, It's a Century of Palestinian Jew Hatred. Saul Stern, I'm so delighted to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Great, great, Eli. Looking forward to having a chat, a little chat. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I want to start off by telling us who was Haj Amin al-Husseini? Hajamin al-Husseini was from the Husseini clan, one of the two ruling clans in Palestine. And after the British liberated Palestine from Ottoman rule in, at the end of World War I, he became a major figure in Palestinian politics. And by the mid-20s, he had been appointed by the British High Commissioner, Herbert Samuel, as the Grand Mufti uh, of Jerusalem and uh, invested with tremendous power over the Palestinian community. And right from the very start, he, at the age of 25 or 26, at the Nebi Musa riots in 1920, he began his career of instigating pogroms and hatred against the uh, Jewish population. Ironically, although he emerged as a so-called anti-Zionist leader, that first pogrom, the, the attack on the Jewish quarter of 
of Jerusalem during the Nebi Musa procession in 1920 was directed entirely, almost entirely, against the ultra-religious community in the Jewish quarter, which, if anything, was indifferent at best to Zionism, to some extent was opposed to Zionism. And had been there yes. for centuries. And eventually... And we're, were, you know, when talk about and, indigenous peoples yes. of the land. And he, he used this power at first as the Grand Mufti, where we made him in charge of the holy places in Jerusalem, and eventually a president of the Muslim Council. And by the, by, by the late 20s, he was the, the leader of the Palestinian people to the extent that it's not that he was elected, actually, he was, a, he was appointed to that position by the British High Commissioner, Herbert Samuel, who was a Jew and supposedly somewhat sympathetic to Zionism. I mean, the strategy of the British at the time was the same. It was, as I put it in the article, it was sort of taken out of the British colonial playbook. If you have possible rebellion among the natives, you know, you dole out favors. So since he had emerged as a firebrand and the idea was given a leadership position and you could sort of co-opt him. Uh, it didn't work then and didn't work for the next hundred years, as they argue. You could argue that this was a strategy that was employed in the 1990s with the Absolutely. Oslo process it was by the taking same thing. terrorist was, Arafat and, and, and then was, it, yes. with Hamas in 2007. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's based on the assumption of we're, you know, that we're dealing with normal politics. There's give and take. You have opposition. You get together. You, you offer something. You get something in return, it's, 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 you know, it's used all the time in diplomacy, but it never worked. And I detail how uh, it never worked for the next hundred years, whether it was tried by the British colonial administration or the mandate, mandatory authorities in, this, in the 20s and 30s, or later by the UN and later by two different Israeli governments. First, the Rabin government, in the Oslo process, and then the Olmert government in 2008, where basically, uh, again and again, Palestinians were offered a state if they would just give up their war against the Jews. And, and every single occasion, I detail four different occasions where the leaders of the Palestinians themselves had uh, make a choice between two different paths. In one path, they could have ended the occupation, not that they would get all of Palestine, but ended occupation of a, a, a significant chunk of, of Palestine and achieve independence. Or they could say no and, in a sense, continue some sort of occupation but, and also continue the war against the Jews. And every time on those four occasions throughout the, this 100-year period, uh, they chose the latter and to the, to the ruin of their own people. So I want to talk a little bit about that first pogrom, the Nebi Musa mm. riots. Tell me about, just paint the scene for us, what happened there. And because I, I want to tie it into the current moment, because there was, in fact, as you write in this piece, and you know I've read this obviously in history books, that there was a kind of fake rumor that there would be the, either the reconstruction of another temple or the destruction of the Al-Aqsa That was later. That was in Is the 29. I'm you, oh, sorry. You're jumping ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. That was Hebron. Pogrom, 1929. Okay. So my bad. So let's start then with, tell me about what happened in the Nebi Musa riots in 1920. 
Well, there was this traditional procession. It was held every year. And Palestinians would come into Jerusalem from all over the country, and they would have, you know, religious-type ceremony and procession. And in 1920, it was a mandate in effect, and after the Balfour direct dec Declaration, and with the fear of Jewish immigration and, and of... What is the Balfour Declaration again? It's just... Lord, Lord Balfour. It's part of the deal, the, the arrangements for the, you know, for the taking over of when the British defeated the uh, Ottomans in the Middle East, Lloyd Balfour at Great Britain basically was, you know, promised a homeland for Jews with full rights for Arabs. It was sort of the, the great victory of Zionism in getting the British behind, at least in declaring that there would be a place for some sort of a Jewish homeland in the area at that time known as Palestine, which at that time was, of course, on both sides of the Jordan River. It included everything that's now Israel, the West Bank, plus the Kingdom of Jordan was, was basically part of the historic Palestine. And when the British mandate was established, it was for both sides of the Jordan. Then they lopped off one part of the, the, the eastern part of Palestine, on the east of the, uh, of the Jordan River, and created the Emirate of uh, Transjordan and established uh, Hashemites on the, you know, basically took Jordan away from the British mandate. So what was left okay. was uh, the area now known as, you know, the Jordan River to the Medi Mediterranean. So in this riot, we also meet someone named Aref Al-Aref, who is the editor of the Palestinian Arab journal Southern Syria. Just tell us a little bit about what his well, role he was. Well, he was another young man, <laughs> a young radical, and yeah. a, a radical nationalist. And, and he was one of the agitators at, at the Nebi Musa gathering and urged the fellow Arabs to storm the Jewish quarter. You know, rode around on a horse, you know, saying Palestine is, is our land and the Jews are our dogs. So I'm, I'm taking that from a very good history of that period by Tom Segev. You know, it was a widely, you know, favorably received book about that period. And he eventually, once the riots were suppressed by the British authorities, both Haj Amin al-Husseini and Araf al-Araf were brought to trial, but they had escaped. They were sentenced to 10 years. And when Herbert Samuel was then appointed the High Commissioner of Palestine, he felt he had to, you know, co-op and deal with the Arab leadership as they were. And he pardoned them both. And he, he elevated Haj Amin al-Husseini to this position of, you know, complete leadership of the Palestinian people at that time. And Hajim Husseini continued, and it was quite a, quite a story. First, in 1929, he agitated. Yeah, let's, let's in, talk in about 29, 29 he now. spread the rumor that the Jews were going to, were going to take over the Haraf Al-Haraf, the, the, the holy place, and, and create, and create a temple there. Total, total manufactured. Right. Again, there was another riot and storming of the Jewish quarter, and then shortly later, a massacre in the at the Jewish in the Jewish community of Hebron, about twenty miles from I, Jerusalem. I, I want to stop right there because this lie that the Jews will somehow erase the Temple Mount 
and specifically Al-Aqsa Mosque, where there is a hadith that Muhammad ascended to heaven in a dream from there, although I don't think it's in the Quran. That is a lie that is told today. In fact, the one of the many justifications of the atrocities of October 7 was the alleged presence of religious Jews on Haram al-Sharif or the Dome of the Rock and the threat to Al-Aqsa. And indeed, this disgusting massacre was called Al-Aqsa Flood. That's right. So I think, I mean, just maybe let's just talk about that, that this is this is a slander that goes back a hundred years. Correct. It's a good. It's a good point you made. I didn't. I didn't deal with that in my article, but that is another another interesting historical connection. And that that by the way that that fear that you the use of the the fear of the Jews taking over the Al Aqsa the Temple Mount fueled many other, you know, it, it fueled to some extent the the Intifada. And if you the violence against, you know, uprisings of Palestine. You're the second yeah. intifada. Right. And, 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 and by the way, we should say, and this is a very important point, and I want to kind of get your thoughts on this, and I want to still, we're still going to keep talking about the Hebron riot. This idea that there is this delineation between Islamist groups or Islamist Palestinian groups versus, let's call them nationalist groups like Fatah, but we see that the, they share the same language, they share the same kind of mythology, and they share many of the same tactics. So Arafat, the alleged secular leader, who was, I mean, he comes from that secular background, he creates the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade after the Second Intifada, back to that mosque. Hamas launches Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. 1929 is a riot predicated on the lie that Al-Aqsa is in danger from Jews. Correct. That's, that you make, again, that's a good point. And yes, it's true that at a certain point, there was a, a significant Arab nationalist, more secular movement. And in an early article and commentary earlier this year, I pointed out that the person that's the writer, academic, uh, Constantine Zureik, a born in Syria, a Greek Orthodox, became the one of the leading Arab nationalists with a, a secularist approach. He incorporated the same anti-Semitic ideas into his own writings. And when he wrote the first book on the Nakba, he did it as an Arab nationalist and a secularist. He was not an Islamist. But he, he viewed the coming of the Jews and the Zionist enterprise in, in the same way and not that differently than the Islamists did. It was a violation of the idea of the this whole area was going to be, was an, one an Arab, United Arab nation and the Jews had usurped it and they did it. Zionism was based on sinister Jewish power. Zurek had been educated in the United States. He was a member of the Syrian delegation to the UN in 47. And he used that to argue, well, I've seen them. I've seen how the Zionists, with their control, the Jews, with their control of, of power in the United States, with their control of the newspapers, with their financial control, something, you know, he put that into his first Nakba, the first Nakba book. And it was the same as you could have read from Father Coghlan or Henry Ford, just traditional anti-Zionism, uh, anti-Semitism. Well, I, I, 
I want to, yeah, I want to, and that's an important thread, but I think we should also say the concept that this is Muslim lands that should not have Jews in them goes back to Islam. That's Dar al-Islam versus Dar al-Hab. The land of war versus the land of peace. And the land of peace is Muslim controlled land. And that is a concept that is shared by both the so-called secular nationalist part of the Palestinian liberation movement and the Islamist strain. I, well, yes. <laughs> yeah. You, you summed it up exactly. <laughs> okay, so I want to now continue to talk a little bit about Hebron because the Hebron riots are spectacularly violent and brutal. Maybe just talk about the kinds of things that were done to yeshiva students, to regular Jews. These were not attacks on soldiers. These were attacks on civilians. There's a famous story about a rabbi who refu- who gives safe harbor to many of his students, refuses to let them out, and then there's a disgusting riot, and, and maybe talk a little bit about what they ended up doing. Yeah, the mobs just, in a way, it was very similar. You, know, you can draw a connection directly to, to, to October 7th, 7th of course. They didn't, you know, the Palestinians didn't have many guns and bombs at the time, and they didn't have a military form. That would come later in the 30s when, when they started the revolt against the British. But it was mostly done with, with, you know, sticks and stones and whatever they could get their hands on. And you're exactly right. There was, there was no military. There was, there was no Haganah in, in Hebron. There was no self-defense force. It was, again... Pious, and pious were also Jews. Jews who'd lived there. For yes, centuries. pious Jews had lived in Hebron for, for, for centuries, and again, were not even didn't even consider themselves many of them a part of the Yeshua or the, the Zionist. By that time, there was a Zionist community and the beginnings of self-defense, but it was mostly you know along it was along the coast, that part of Palestine, not in Hebron. So it was, it was a, an attack on a totally defenseless civilian population. But I think I think many people were shocked by the images of mutilated bodies. That was a feature of the exactly. Hebron riots. I think there were maybe three dozen or four dozen Jews who were castrated. Yep. There were rapes there. So that kind of, I mean, I guess you could almost, you know, it's, 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 it goes back to Mesopotamia. It goes back to, you know, this is ancient warfare. You know, this is something that we associate with like Carmona or Genghis Khan. And that kind of spectacular violence has been a feature as well of these Palestinian uh, pogroms. Exactly. That's right. I call it, you know, I had, it's a combination. It's, It's a century of Palestinian rejectionism politically and of Jew hate. Yep. Direct Jew yes. hatred, translated because it's the Jews, you know, and, and it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, it spills over. It doesn't matter whether the Jews that want attacks happen to be Zionists and actually want to establish a, a, an independent state or the pious Jews. They're all, they're all lumped together. And that, that, that's the trope of the anti-Semitism behind it. All the Jews are are devious what, uh, and uh, manipulative. And, and interlopers yeah. with no yeah. claim to a land. In interlopers as, in terms as a people. Of course, you know, the idea yes. of, you know, 
people on the other side would argue, well, you know, actually the Jews were treated better in the Arab lands, even though they were, quote, dimmies and often in, in uh, Europe. Our, our, yeah. The late Dr. Bernard yeah. Lewis, of course, so, made this argument. That doesn't, but that's, even if for that, you know, to extend it was true, it's irrelevant. Every, 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 every group, every people in the world has a right to aspire to have a nation or peoplehood. And if all the Jews in the world were pious Jews, were just content uh, to study Torah, no matter where they lived, and were not interested in, in the, uh, you know, in, in politics, okay, but we're not. Now, I, I, if we could, I'd like to ask you about Haj Amin al-Husseini's relationship with the Third Reich and particularly Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, eventually Haj Amin al-Husseini became the elected leader, I mean, of, among eight leaders of something called the Arab Higher Council, which was the first real political body that's separate from the religious bodies that was recognized eventually by almost everyone as representing the Palestinian Arabs. And in the mid-30s, 36, 37, they started a revolt. By this time, during, during the revolt against the British, of course, he was, they were hunting for him, and he, he escaped to Lebanon, and he kind of directed the uh, revolt from Lebanon. When that finally failed, he headed off to Iraq. He became part of the pro-Axis, pro-Nazi revolt in Iraq against the, the, the government, it was a, the British-backed government of Iraq, and he escaped again to, and wound up in Berlin and by, you know, just before the uh, war started. And he was there until, until Germany surrendered, and he was given a place of honor. He, you know, the, uh, many of the people who justified... He met with Hitler. Yeah, yeah, he, he met with Hitler, there are uh, letters in the German, memos in the German archives indicating that Hitler actually confided to him about the coming final solution. He became a close associate of Heinrich Himmler, and he performed real uh, tasks for the Wehrmacht. He, he went to Bosnia, and because of his influence in the Muslim world, he recruited the Bosnian Muslims to join the Waffen-SS. When the war, you know, when Germany surrendered, the French uh, captured him and held him. And the Yugoslav government asked for his extradition to be tried on, you know, on war crimes. The French government held him for about a year and a half. There was tremendous uh, pressure for French foreign office people and even American State Department people not to prosecute him because of the reaction in the Arab world. And he, he escaped. He, he was a great escape artist. He escaped from 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 a villa outside. Well, uh, he was Paris. allowed to escape, as you were. Yeah, the, the, of... the, the stories are that they weren't guarding it too close. He was, he had become a headache for the French, and he got to Egypt, where he was welcomed as a hero, as a conquering hero. And and, and there he the, meets a man named Hassan Albana. Yeah, who was the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. And there's yes. a kind of eventual connection. We're coming, you know, full circle back to back to October seventh because Hamas, Hamas is, is the is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, steeped in anti-Semitism and Islamic supremacy. And in in Egypt, Hajim and Hosseini has an alliance with the Muslim Brotherhood. They 
they work together and eventually send troops into Palestine to start fighting against the Jews uh, even before even before the British leave in, in 1947. And Hajim al-Husseini, despite his, you know, his the fact that he was a, you know, a war criminal and, and a full-fledged Nazi a collaborator, was elected again as head of the Arab Higher Committee, which the UN recognized as the, the body representing the Palestinian Arabs when, when, they de- when the UN debated the partition resolution. And the another, Arab by Higher the way, Committee. another parallel, right? Yes. Hamas wins an election in 2006. Uh, you know, Hash Amin al-Husseini wins his election in the Arab Council. It's, it's a, right. it's the history is repeating yes. it, or at least it rhymes, right? Yes, it's, yes unfortunately and tragically. And, uh, yes. you know, and we're still, we are, you know, the, the, this two-state solution is like become a mantra. It's totally devoid of history. You know? There have been two-state uh, solutions tried for I mean, I want a two-state solution, but folks... Let's at least look back and, you know, the definition of insanity is when you, when you do something and fails and you keep trying again and again and you keep failing. And, you know, my argument is the reason the two-state solution has, uh, has failed again and again is because basically a Palestinian leadership up to this very date do not want a two-state solution. They always find an excuse and even in the, uh, during the Oslo process, when we all thought, I mean, I was in favor of it. It sounded great. On paper, it sounds great. It, it was something that sounded like a good deal. You, we, the Israeli government rescued Yasser Arafat from lonely exile in Tunis and installed him as a, on the West Bank in Ramallah and gave him all these perks. And he was a leader of the Palestinians. And the idea was after five years, Everyone would negotiate, you know, we have a final status solution, which would basically be the two-state solution. And Arafat, at the, when, you know, uh, at the 24th hour, when he realized it was time, you know, to fulfill his part of the deal, just rolled out the Nakba, the idea of, you know, the Nakba and the Palestinian refugees. From as you say, the Nakba is, is translates into the catastrophe. Yes. It is what Palestinians refer to as the war for of 1948, which established the state of Israel. Correct. And, you know, as you point out in your essay, it isn't, in some ways is the Nakba is a myth because it fails to account for the fact that every Arab army at the time joined the Palestinians and it was a war with atrocities on both sides. But we seem to only know about Dar Yassin and, and, and various others on the Jewish side. Yes, and the, and the at the heart of the Nakba is the idea that you can only redeem the Nakba, we can only redeem this catastrophe and make up for it by having the refugees go back to their homes, which right. which in in you know their homes in Jaffa, eighty and, years almost, yeah. right. and and so those seven hundred thousand refugees, which by the way was just a tiny fraction of the refugees that were created all over the world as a result of the you know various conflicts and how they ended both in Europe and the and the Indian subcontinent it was a tiny fraction 700,000 guess what uh, according and backed by the UN according to the Palestinians there are now 7 million refugees and the, the idea of return hasn't changed that is that 
to solve this problem, the Palestinian refugees have to have the, they, they don't say every refugee has to go back, but they have the right, inherent right to return to their former homes in Jaffa, you know, and, and everywhere else that came well, from. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a non-starter in a lot of ways. Right, and, that's exactly. But, it's a, and, and, and it's deliberately a non-starter, except the problem is it's always thrown in at the end. Like that's been the problem. So during Oslo, there was a general sense that we would have this interim period that was part of the agreement, and then we have final status. All of a sudden, at the end, Arafat says, no, wait a minute. We forgot about the Nakba and the 7 million, at the time, 5 million refugees. And when Mahmoud Abbas has 35 one-on-one meetings with Ehud Omer in 2008, and Omer literally gives him a map in which she of a Palestinian state with its capital in Jerusalem, and essentially almost 100% of the territory the Palestinians had, you know, before 67. And all of a sudden, Abbas doesn't come back. And when it's, he then says, How, what about the Nakba? What about the right of return? I can't negotiate away my people's right of return. So the problem is, what, what we need is, is a courageous Western leaders who finally say, okay, we want a two-state solution. But we're not even going to get into negotiating for it unless you drop the lessons of history are you can't throw in the refugees at the end. Right now, say it out loud. This has nothing to do with refugees. There's no right of return. You can get a state, but you can't get the right of return, which would destroy Israel if it were. Well, there's a deeper point there, too. I mean, it's not just this idea that you're going to have seven million Palestinians, you know, returning to their homes with the keys around their neck and everything like that, which is a fantasy. You have to give up the fantasy that you're going to drive the Jews from the land with acts of spectacular violence, which have been a constant of Palestinian independence movement. Yes. As you demonstrate since 1920, and really before there were these, you know, raids on Jewish communities and things like that. But you see these kind of moments of horrific pogroms and it's a feature. And, you know, I, with a little bit of time we have left, I, I want to ask you about what you think as you are now an Israeli citizen. Yes. And we talk about Israeli democracy sometimes. It's a huge issue, obviously, before October 7, when there were weekly, if not daily, protests against the Netanyahu government. At this point, what do you think an Israeli state can realistically be asked to do once this war is over in terms of a kind of peace process? I think the question is, isn't what Israel will do. The question is, okay. the Palestinians are the ones that are suffering. It's what are they going to do? What are we? What is the world going to say to the Palestinians? No, but I about, mean, what can you ask an Israeli polity to accept at this point? I would ask... Given the fact that the illusions of peace and land for peace... I mean, October 7, in some ways, is, is, a, is a great argument against land for peace, if you think about it. Land for war is what you got. Well, I, 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 I don't... This, this is a complicated issue. My, my view is I don't want Israel to try to control six or seven million Palestinians. Yeah, I agree. And, no, no, uh, that, that I agree uh, on. I'm, I'm, I'm and, saying and, that's, but but I'm well, saying... unfortunately, we have to... We have to 
our government has to hang on and do the best it can to ameliorate the problems, certainly don't exacerbate them with the antics of some of the wild settlers in the West Bank, and wait until a rational, if we have to wait another 50 years, well, we've waited one century, so we wait, you know, I, I don't think, it's a question of an Israeli initiative. I, I believe if it's the Palestinian people who are suffering, who desperately need a solution, much more than the Israelis do, they can hang on and control the West Bank. Not pleasant, it's, it creates tremendous problems. If it's the Palestinians are suffering, it's the world that should say now, okay, we are in favor of a two-state solution, but we have to start by giving up entirely the idea of the return of the refugees and the elimination of Israel. At least, at the very least, say it up front, because nothing will happen until you have a Palestinian leader brave enough to go to those refugee camps, those so-called refugee camps, with kids who were born 10 years ago or 15 years ago who are being indoctrinated right now into the crazy idea that they literally are going back to their homeland. Unless you tell those refugees, we've been conning you for the last 50 years. It's not going to happen. You'll get, we will, the refugee camps should end. You'll be, there'll be rehabilitation. There'll be money. There'll be, you know, an agreement, we'll have an independent Palestinian state. You know, you'll be a citizen of the state of Palestine, but no more refugee status. It's time to end. We have to, you know, someone at the UN has to be brave enough to, to say UNRWA and the refugee camps have been a complete... UNRWA is the UN agency yes. that administers... Instead of rehabilitating Palestinians... It's been causing misery for Palestinians because what have they gotten out of it? What have they gotten? They're no closer to independence. When their economy is suffering, there's a lot of interesting data that, you know, before Oslo, when Israel had total control, you know, control of the West Bank and Gaza, the Palestinian economy was blooming. There were tremendous, you know, Thousands and thousands of Palestinians were working in Israel. They were developing expertise. Universities started on the West Bank under Israeli occupation, not before. It was only when they went over into this idea of resistance instead of a diplomatic solution that the economy collapsed and the Palestinian people were immiserated and continued well, I would, to be. I would add to that that it's like... Herbert Samuels, we, we, we keep picking corrupt autocratic leaders for the Palestinians that also immiserate their population. Correct. So it's when we, we choose Arafat. And to a certain extent, I mean, maybe you can, we have a little bit of time left. There, maybe you could untangle this argument, which is that the, the people who are against Israel in the West like to say Netanyahu helped Hamas. He wanted Hamas. Maybe talk about that. I don't know if I would agree. He, he allowed for Qatar to fund Hamas in Gaza. He certainly, in previous rocket wars, did not seek regime change. Do you think it's fair to say that Netanyahu, I know you've been a real critic of Netanyahu, so I want to make that very clear. Is it fair to say that Netanyahu kind of wanted Hamas in place? 
Is that a fair argument? I don't think he wanted Hamas in place. I think he was more for, he was just, he thought he had Hamas contained. That was right. the idea of, of, of containment. You know, that was the incredible intelligence failure that we had, right. you know, that contain, containment was working. Yes, every once in a while, there'll be an exchange of rockets. Uh, very, the truth is, for all of that, during the previous, as you put it well, rocket wars, very few, almost no Israelis were killed. Israelis were yeah. being killed mostly from raids, you know, from raids into Israel from the West Bank and from, from right. the refugee camps. And so the idea was, well, you know, the idea was every once in a while they'll start, they'll shoot some rockets. You know, it's their way of getting more money and the more money will come from Qatar, we'll have a ceasefire and it'll quiet down. There was no sense that there was a real existential threat and I think the government was taken, it was not just an intelligence failure not to, you know, and not to have, you know, it's best symbolized in a way that the focus on the West Bank rather than, than Gaza was that on this holiday, Simchat Torah, the Shabbat, they, were, they, allowed, they allowed a group of peaceniks, you know, hippies to have a concert a mile from the Gaza border. There were no soldiers there. Where were the soldiers? First of all, it was a Shabbat, so it's a Jewish country, and a lot of soldiers are, you know, get the weekend off. And among yeah. the remaining soldiers, many of them were on the West Bank because the assumption was we had to protect the settlements. So, you know, it was an incredible intelligence failure, but it was also, you know, the a strategic, a, a strategic and a conceptual failure that Hamas was was contained. And in a way, we didn't take seriously enough the fact that Hamas wasn't just an independent actor. They were a strategic pawn of Iran, which wants to ignite, you know, a, a regional alliance that has been against Israel. And no one thought it could happen. And unfortunately, this is a, this is a strong possibility coming from the north and the south and, and from the West Bank. And that's There'll have to be a reckoning about that. I, I hope, you know, this unity that suddenly we see in Israel will, will last, and at least there'll be a rational discussion, political discussion, of what are the priorities for Israel at a time when it's literally survival is at stake. I really believe it is. At a time when it's your survival is at stake, you don't, you don't play around, tinker around for shallow political reasons with with your with your, you know, constitutional structure, you know, and antagonize half right. the people. If you think, you know, we don't have the luxury for that. You know, maybe there are some good arguments for changes in the Supreme Court. I've I've, I've seen the debate on both sides. I don't say that the other side doesn't have some arguments, but we're in the middle. You know, it's like playing around. It's like Roosevelt deciding to pack the Supreme Court in the middle of World War II. <laughs> and starting a fight. 100%. I mean, there yeah. are other analogies. And, and there was this sense of, oh, we have, we have the luxury of doing this. We have the luxury of having this fight. We don't. You know, we're in deep, tr the, the country is, the future of the country is at stake. The future of a Jewish state is at stake. Well, that's really brilliantly put. I commend this article and everything that Saul Stern writes. He's a real treasure and, you know, in my, in my view, a, a kind of a role model as a journalist 
who's lived an amazing life. We're going to have you back, Saul, to just talk about your personal story. And I'll just give the listeners a little bit of a taste. If you remember from our Deep State episodes, Saul Stern wrote many of those articles for Ramparts magazine. So more on that, about how a kind of rising star of the new left became a neoconservative Zionist. Am I, can I call you that, Saul? Not bad. Uh, definitely a Zionist. Okay. And the original neoconservatism, yes. That is, yeah. Yes, I, I plead go. guilty to the old-style old neoconservatism, yes. So we will, we, will, we will have Saul back soon, I hope, to talk about that. And anyway, Godspeed, Saul Stern. Thank you so much. Wonderful piece. And I'm so glad you could spend the morning with us. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Angela. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.